Exodus chapter 11. You can follow along with me in your Bible. I'm going to try to have all the verses here on the screen as we go through them. Today is the twelfth new moon of the year, to the best of my understanding. And so that means that we have the first month of the year in about one month, roughly about 30 days, and we have about a month and a half until Passover. So it's been about seven years. I went back and looked at my sermons and my notes. It's been about seven years since I taught through Exodus chapters 11 and 12. And so I'm going to do that again beginning in this sermon and up until Passover. Ever how many sermons that it takes. I anticipate maybe five or six, something like that. I enjoy reteaching sermons over the years, not just because there are different people that are listening. It's been a long time, seven years, but because... My understanding increases the older that I get in the Spirit and the more that I study and do research of Scripture. My first Passover was back in 1998. I didn't really know what I was doing, but was doing it on faith. I was obeying first and understanding later, like the song that Sister Kathy sings. But since then, since 98 and since 2013, the last time I taught on this, I've gained in knowledge on several of these verses And I've increased in understanding on how to observe the Passover, and I hope to share all of this in an easy-to-comprehend, easy-to-understand way. So, by way of uh, introduction, Passover is the first commanded annual festival of the year according to the law of Yahweh, according to the Torah. Of course, we have the new moons and we have the Sabbaths. The new moons are monthly feasts. The Sabbaths are weekly feasts. The Passover is the first in the annual feast cycle and it begins the new cycle of annual or yearly appointments that our father gives us and he gives them to us as great reminders of past events in the history of his people Israel and they are also shadows of something greater in the Messiah some of these I've pinpointed over the years but regardless whether or not we know exactly what a festival or an appointed time may shadow and have a greater reality in the Messiah, we know from Scripture that they are shadows of greater things to come. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. Let me give you an example here that I think everyone in here is aware of, but it will surprise you that when you share this information with people in the world, specifically Christian people, that a lot of them don't realize that Yeshua died at Passover time. And not only did He die at Passover, He resurrected during the days of unleavened bread. He resurrected actually on the second day of unleavened bread, which was the wave sheaf day. It was the day that the priest would cut the barley sheaf, the first fruits of the barley harvest, lift it up and wave it. Some translations say, or just lift it up, some say, before the Father. And Yeshua was resurrected from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 says He was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And I believe that that means He was the first man ever to be resurrected from death to eternal life. The very first. Now, that didn't just accidentally happen. It wasn't a coincidence that our Messiah died at Passover. It was not a coincidence that He was raised from the dead during the days of unleavened bread. Yahweh purposed and planned it to happen exactly like that. It's not a coincidence. 
Yahweh made it happen that way because Yahweh is in control of time and He's also in control of what happens in time. So, Exodus chapter 12 is the most detailed chapter in all of the Bible about the Passover. And so many people have asked me in the last 22 plus years, I just had somebody ask me this the other day on the telephone this past Sabbath. This particular sister said, so how do you keep the Passover? We heard that you do the Passover a little bit differently. How do you keep the Passover? Well, we may do Passover a little differently than a lot of Messianic groups or a lot of Hebrew roots, Torah observant groups. But the way that we do the Passover is not any different than what the Scriptures actually teach. And so when somebody asks me, Brother Matthew, how do you keep the Passover? I tell them, just read Exodus chapter 12. That's how I do it. Now, I may not do it perfectly. I try to do it perfectly. I may not. I may make mistakes. I may make some mistakes that I don't even know about. But I try my best to follow the instructions Yahweh give to us the best that I know how each year. I've advanced over the years in doing it. So I try to follow the instructions the best that I know how. I take it very seriously. I plan for it. Make sure everything's properly done. And then at the end, I pray. May the good Yahweh pardon those of us that have purposed in our heart to keep the Passover, even though we may not have kept it according to the ordinance. And I get that prayer from Second Chronicles chapter 30. That was a prayer that a righteous man named King Hezekiah prayed when they were actually keeping the Passover in some instances, in some ordinances, otherwise than it was written in the Torah. And Hezekiah knew that. There was a time of restoration and a time of mercy there. But these are the instructions in Exodus 12. And if you want to know how to keep the Passover, you don't have to know Jewish tradition. You don't have to know about the Seder. All you need to do is read Exodus chapter 12 and do your best to follow the commands that Yahweh gives to you about the Passover. So today I want to begin by reading Exodus chapter 11 because it's a precursor to Exodus chapter 12. It sets the stage for what is about to take place and I believe that there are some very important lessons for us to learn in Exodus chapter 11. I'm going to teach three verses today and I don't want to rush it. I want to take my time because hopefully these sermons will be used for a long time from here on out. So let's begin. I want to begin by reading Exodus 11. Exodus chapter 11 verses 1 through 10. Yahweh said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. Now announce to the people that both men and women should ask their neighbors for silver and gold jewelry. Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And the man Moses was highly regarded. Some translations say very great. My older HCSB says that the man Moses was feared in the land of Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. I'll talk about that later in the message. So Moses said, this is what Yahweh says, About midnight I will go throughout Egypt, and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, to the firstborn of the servant girl who is behind the millstones, as well as every firstborn of the livestock. 
Then there will be a great cry of anguish through all the land of Egypt, such as never was before or ever will be again. But against all the Israelites, whether man or beast, not even a dog will snarl, so that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come down to me and bow before me, saying, Leave you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. And he left Pharaoh's presence in fierce anger. Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his land. May Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. So, let's first notice that the Passover is connected with the plagues that took place on the land of Egypt. What happened at Passover in Exodus 12 was the last or the final of the ten plagues that Yahweh brought on the land of Egypt. Yet, even though it was the tenth and last plague, it was the very first plague to be announced in the book of Exodus. Let me show you this in Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. It says, Yahweh instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do all the wonders before Pharaoh that I have put within your power. But I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. It's interesting. Yahweh commissions Moses, tells him what to do, but he tells him, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Even though you're asking him, let my people go, he's not going to let my people go. Verse 22, Then you will say to Pharaoh, And this is where the the last and final plague is actually announced to Moses. Then you will say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. That's the tenth plague announced to Moses here at the beginning before any of the plagues took place. So a few things here. Yahweh says he will be the one to harden the heart of Pharaoh after Moses does mighty wonders in front of Pharaoh. I'll come back to this. Number two, Yahweh calls Israel his firstborn son here in Exodus chapter 4. I believe this is a metaphor. We know that Israel is also called Yahweh's wife in the book of Ezekiel and the book of Hosea. And these are metaphors for the relationship that Yahweh has with His chosen people. In some ways, it can be explained as a beautiful covenant marriage. In other ways, it can be explained as the relationship that a father has with his son. So that's why He calls him His firstborn son here. He has fathered the nation of Israel in a certain way. He has a special or unique relationship with them. The Israelites, the descendants, physical descendants from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, were Yahweh's special chosen people. He chose them above all the peoples on the face of the earth for a specific task. And therefore, He's considered their father in a unique way. And He considers them to be His firstborn son. Talking about the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're chosen for a special task. Now, notice finally, Yahweh says that Pharaoh will refuse to let the Israelites go 
So now Yahweh will kill the firstborn son of Pharaoh. And by implication here, the firstborn sons throughout all the land of Egypt. To get some of the backstory, in Exodus chapters 1 through 3, we read that Moses grew up in the land of Egypt. He was there when the Israelites came to be under harsh slavery to the Egyptians. But it had not always been that way. In the days of Joseph, at the latter portion of Genesis, we've just recently gotten into our Joseph readings from Genesis 37 last Sabbath. Today we read about Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. But Genesis 37 begins the biblical account of Joseph. And Joseph went through a lot of hard times. But eventually, he got to be second in command over all the land of Egypt. He was given an Egyptian name. Pharaoh put his own ring on his finger. And he was allowed to make decisions. They consulted Joseph about the famine that was coming in the land. He was able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh when nobody else could. And in bringing all this up, what I'm trying to show is that Joseph and his father and brothers, the Israelites, the sons of Jacob Israel, had a good relationship at the beginning with the Pharaoh of Egypt at that time and with the Egyptians. After Joseph died, though, and time moved on, it caused the memory of Joseph and his power and his wisdom to fade away. Sometimes time does that. Um, I was telling somebody the other day that you don't want it to be this way, but thinking about it, that my granddaddy has died recently, September the 8th, last year, you don't want to forget about him, but now that he's gone, that's what happens. See, and I can teach my grandson, Owen Steele, I can teach him about my, my granddaddy, but he'll never know my granddaddy like I did. So as time goes on, people's memory fades away. And so Joseph died, and what Joseph had accomplished there in Egypt began to fade away. And then there rose up a new pharaoh in the land of Egypt that didn't know about Joseph. And so they began to worry that the Israelites were going to overtake the Egyptians, because they multiplied a lot. <laughs> they had a lot of children. And what this led to was forced labor on the Israelites, harsh taskmasters, and even taking all of the sons that were born to Hebrew women and throwing them into the Nile River, which was the great river in the land of Egypt. A lot of Egyptians even worshipped the Nile as a deity or as a god. Basically, what they were doing was post-labor abortion for Hebrew sons. They were taking the little baby boys, Hebrew boys, as soon as they came out, and they were throwing them in the Nile River. You can read that at the beginning portion of the book of Exodus. Now Moses, or Moshe, as he was called in Hebrew, which means to draw from the water, he was born during this time. And he lived through this decree. Yahweh's hand was on Moses. He protected him. He grew up as he was found. His mother put him in this basket, put him in the river, and it floated down. And this Egyptian princess found him. And he grew up, even though he was a Hebrew by birth, he grew up as an Egyptian in regards to what he was taught and how he lived his life um, as a young man. But eventually he left Egypt. He traveled to a place called Midian. And he married a Midianite woman named Zipporah the daughter of Jethro, the priest. And then he was commissioned by the mighty one of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to go back to Egypt and be the deliverer that Israel had prayed and cried out for. Of 
according to the book of Numbers. They cried out for a deliverer. And Yahweh chose Moses, the man that had grew up in Egypt, the man who left Egypt because he had saw this skirmish between these two fellows, and he broke it up and he killed this Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And it became known. And so he fled the land of Egypt. And now Yahweh's saying, go back to the land of Egypt. You're my chosen man. You're my chosen vessel. And you tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Let my firstborn son Israel go. When Moses went in there, I imagine it probably was scary for him. I know that he tried so hard in chapter 3 and 4 to get out of the job. He, he tried so hard, he even said, look, I don't have good speech. And finally, Yahweh got fed up with him. And he said, okay, then I'll let Aaron, your brother, speak. He can speak good. He'll be your mouthpiece. But Moses tried hard. He probably didn't want to go back down there to Egypt. And Moses spoke the words. When he got in front of Pharaoh, he spoke the words, let my firstborn son Israel go. Israel was not Moses' firstborn son, but... Moses was Yahweh's chosen man. And Yahweh would speak through Moses and do miracles and signs and wonders through Moses. Moses was like a mouthpiece and a messenger to relay his words to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. So then we bump up to about Exodus chapters 7 through 10, where Yahweh brings a series of plagues on Egypt through the hands of Moses and sometimes through the hands of Moses' older brother, Aaron, that eventually became the first high priest in the nation of Israel. The first plague was that Egypt's water was turned into blood. And then swarms of frogs came on the land. Next, it was swarms of gnats, and then it was swarms of flies. Then death came to the livestock. Next was boils on people and on animals. Then it was hail from the sky mixed with fire. And after that, it was a plague of locusts. Then came the ninth plague of three days of darkness. And it was darkness that was so dark and so thick that it could not just be seen, black darkness, but it could be felt. And the Egyptians just stayed there where they were for three days and didn't move. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 10. But all the while in Goshen land, which was part of the land of Egypt, it was in northern Egypt. Goshen is where the Israelites had lived since the days of Joseph. In Goshen land they had light. But where Pharaoh was in the surrounding towns and cities, it was darkness, thick darkness. That was the ninth plague. After the ninth plague of darkness, Pharaoh told Moses, take everybody with you and leave Egypt. But Pharaoh added this clause. He said, but don't take the flocks and the herds. The flocks and the herds stay with me. And Moses said, no, we need animals for sacrifices and burnt offerings in honor and worship to our Elohim. Because when we get to where we're going, we're not exactly sure how He's going to tell us He wants to be worshipped. So we've got to take flocks and herds with us for sacrifice. And then in Exodus 10.27 it says that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was unwilling to let the Israelites go. And Pharaoh said, leave me and make sure you never see my face again. For on the day that you see my face again, you will surely die. That brings us up to Exodus chapter 11. And Exodus 11, 1 through 3 is kind of a parenthesis in thought and writing. It's between the last verse of chapter 10, verse 29, and chapter 11, verse 4. 1 through 3 is a parenthesis in thought. 
If you notice in Exodus 10.29, Moses responds to Pharaoh, As you've said, I will never see your face again. And then go from there to verse 4. Skip over the first three verses and look at verse 4. So Moses said, this is what Yahweh says. He's still standing in front of Pharaoh. He says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. Those two verses, 10 and 29 and 11 and 4, go together in sequence. Moses spoke these words in Exodus 11, 4 through 8, right after he said, you're not going to see my face anymore. He said, Yahweh's got one more word for you. And let me tell you this. And then, of course, in verse 8, as we read in our opening text, once Moses got through talking, it says he left Pharaoh's presence in a lot of anger, righteous indignation. So Exodus 11, 1 through 3 is a parenthesis where Yahweh speaks to Moses. Verse 1 says, Yahweh said to Moses. Scholars and commentators differ on when Yahweh spoke these words to Moses, specifically in verses 1 through 2. Some say that he had already spoken this to Moses at an earlier time. Other scholars believe that Yahweh intervened in Moses' mind right then when he stood in front of Pharaoh for that last time. And I kind of think that it's both. I kind of think that some of this Yahweh had already said to him because we can find it in the beginning of Exodus where Yahweh's speaking to Moses. But I believe while Moses stood there in front of Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, I don't want to see you anymore. The day that you see me again, you're going to die. I think Yahweh put some program into Moses' mind and spoke to him in his thoughts or in his mind. And then Moses uttered what Yahweh told him in verses 4 through 8. So in Exodus 11, verse 1, I guess I should go there here on the screen. Exodus 11, verse 1, Yahweh said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. I want us to realize here, this is very important before we get to the Passover text, I want us to realize that Yahweh is in control here of the outcome. Yahweh can say something like this with such confidence because Yahweh controls what is happening. Remember that Yahweh told Moses, before Moses ever went back to Egypt, Yahweh told him, He said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so he won't let the people go. Pharaoh was not a good guy that Yahweh made do bad things. Pharaoh had a stony heart to begin with. He had an unregenerate heart. He wasn't a believer in Yahweh. But even a stony heart would not like his water to be turned into blood. Even a stony heart would not like swarms of gnats flying around everywhere in his home. I have family in South Georgia, and I remember visiting them in the summertime when I would grow up. And you could not have a conversation outside without swatting gnats the whole time while you were down there in South Georgia. My last memory that I have of my grandfather on my dad's side, I went to see him. He was living in an old folks home, as we call it. And I remember that we were outside talking at first, but we decided to go inside because the gnats were so bad. That's not a plague of gnats. That's just how it is in South Georgia. That's not anywhere near to what the third plague was, the plague of gnats. They had swarms of gnats in Egypt. The Scripture says that all the dust of the earth became gnats. Pharaoh did not like that. A stony heart would not like that. You don't have to be a believer to not like that. 
the magicians of Egypt, although they could perform certain signs of wonders through the power of their deities, which I believe the gods of Egypt uh, were at least what was behind the gods or the idols of Egypt were the fallen angels. They were actually deities, bad gods. That's for another message in the series. But the magicians of Egypt, while they could do certain things, they could not duplicate the plague of the gnats. It says that they tried to, but they told Pharaoh, this is the finger of Elohim, of the Hebrews' mighty one. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. How? By Yahweh. It had to be hardened because anyone, even unregenerate Pharaoh, would tell the Israelites to leave Egypt after being attacked by swarms of gnats. Anybody in the natural would. The first plague, you'd have got tired. You didn't have any water. All the water was blood. You'd say, leave. Get out of here. But each time, Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the Israelites go. And this goes for all the plagues. These were not little small things that came upon Egypt. This wasn't like a little trouble that we face in life. These were damaging plagues. Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart so Pharaoh wouldn't just say leave after the very first plague. Yahweh would multiply His wonders on the land of Egypt. And the reason that He did this was to build up this great account that we're now reading still today and to make a great name for Himself, to make His name known in all of the land. Just before the seventh plague of hell mixed with fire, Yahweh tells Moses, or He says through Moses to Pharaoh, this is in Exodus chapter 9, beginning at verse 15. Exodus 9, 15, listen to what Yahweh says to Pharaoh through Moses, his, his prophet. By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague and you would have been obliterated from the earth. In other words, I could have gotten rid of all of you in Egypt just like that if I wanted to. Verse 16, However, I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known in all the earth. See, Yahweh is in control. Yahweh is sovereign. Yahweh is the Almighty. He did this, all of this for a purpose. He was displaying His great power and making His name known. And from that time on, people would hear, I'm talking about back then, even today, but back then, from that time on, people would hear about Yahweh, the Mighty One of the Hebrews, and they would know that He meant business. Why? Because the story of the plagues. That story would travel around to every nation. And they would say, don't mess with Yahweh. Do you remember what he did to Egypt? That's why Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he could make a great name for himself throughout the known land at that time. What about our free will? Yahweh is in control. I believe Yahweh is in control. What about our free will? I've heard so many Christians get all bent out of shape trying to protect what they call the free will of man. I mean, I hear it all the time. You would think that it's a doctrine in the Scriptures that man has free or autonomous will. In other words, that man can just override Yahweh if he wants to. They'll say things like this, Oh, the Lord would never violate our free will. Do you know what that's saying when we say something like that, that the Lord would never violate our free will? 
it is saying that ultimately man is in charge and Yahweh is secondary. If Yahweh would never violate our own will, then He would have never hardened Pharaoh's heart during these plagues. Yahweh forced this upon Pharaoh. Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. When people ask me if I believe in free will, because sometimes you get in discussions about free will and predestination and Yahweh's sovereignty and even His sovereignty and salvation. When people ask me if I believe in free will, I always respond like this. Yes, I absolutely believe in free will. I believe that Yahweh has the free will to do whatever He wants to do. That's the free will that Brother Matthew believes in. I believe Yahweh is in charge and in control. Yahweh had complete charge over when Pharaoh would let the Israelites go. He did not need anybody's permission. He did not have to ask anyone. He was not bound to the will of Pharaoh, Moses, Aaron, or anyone else. Yahweh decided everything on His own. He's the one that chose Moses, commissioned Moses, sent Moses down, and caused everything to happen. Yahweh did all of that. He's in control. As human creatures, we do have our own will. And it is free to some capacity. But it is not entirely free. Man does not have as free of a will as Yahweh does. And that is because, as humans, our will is bound to our nature. We are limited. Let's say that I decided that I wanted to be like a bird and I wanted to fly like a bird. And so I got on top of the church and I jumped off and tried to fly like a bird. What would happen? I would fall to the ground. I wouldn't be able to do it. My desire or what I willed or wanted was limited by my human nature, by my limited capacity as a human being. My will is confined by my nature, so I cannot do certain things. And listen, that's, that's kind of a silly illustration, but it gets the point across. And it's the same thing spiritually. People make choices spiritually. Spiritual choices. To be a believer or not to be a believer. To do something righteous or to do something unrighteous. But people's choices are bound to who they are in their heart and their mind by nature. Brother TJ taught through the second chapter of Ephesians. In Ephesians 2 verse 4, it says, it calls us, all of us, dead in trespasses and sins and by nature children under the wrath of Yahweh. So if Yahweh never intervened, I'm speaking spiritually now, if Yahweh never intervened to give us a new heart or to give us a new mind, we would never make a choice to serve Yahweh. Now I know that's not a popular theology or soteriology doctrine of God or a doctrine of salvation even in the Christian world. But as a minister or a pastor, and even you as a follower of Yahweh, our job is not to make the Scripture's message more palatable to people. In other words, if somebody will not believe what the Scriptures say, we don't go in here and say, okay, how can I twist it and turn it a little bit so that somebody might be able to receive it? That's not my job as a minister. I would be fearful to do something like that. We simply believe what the Scripture says. Yahweh said in 11 and 1, one more plague I'm going to send, and after that, He's going to let you go. Why can Yahweh say that? Because He's in control. He's in control of everything there. So, Pharaoh 
already had a bad heart. Pharaoh was not a good guy that Yahweh was holding back goodness in. Yahweh simply took away the natural inclination that would be in any of us if a plague hit our home. Even the natural sinful man would experience a plague and want it to stop. I thought about this today. I was going back over my notes and I added this in. Has anybody ever been so sick in your body that you start praying to Yahweh and confessing any sin that you think you might have committed? I have. I have been that sick before. And I don't believe that sin and sickness are always related. But I can show you in the Bible that sometimes that they are. And I've, I've been so sick before and felt so bad in my body, hunched over. I remember one time when I lived in the house over there close to Brother Arnold. I was laying there by the gas heater and I was so I was hurting so bad for a few days and I was praying and everything that I could think of that I had done wrong or even things that I might not have confessed prior to that sickness, I began to confess. Why? Because I wanted somehow, if, if that's what was causing the sickness, I wanted to make it right with the Creator and say, look, I'm sorry, I'll do better. I knew better to do that. I'll try better the next time. Please forgive me, Yahweh. Anybody that had a plague hit their home, anybody would say, y'all get out of Egypt, leave. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. He simply took that natural inclination away. So we have a will, and Yahweh has a will, but Yahweh's will is more free than ours is. Our will is limited. Our will is not completely free. I do not believe that man has free will like Yahweh does. There are some things that Yahweh cannot do, but they are part of what makes Him the unique Elohim. For example, there was a man one time, some of y'all know him. He was, he was, his name was James Reddy. And one time, I was sitting in Brother Arnold's living room. He was on the couch and I was at his feet. And I'll never forget, he looked, <laughs> he looked at me and he said, he smiled. He said, why are you sitting there on the ground? I said, well, I wanted to hear you better. I couldn't hear you from the other couch. And he smiled and he said, you know, he said, all the great disciples sat at their teacher's feet. <laughs> That's what he told me. <laughs> so, but I'll never forget what he said next. He told me, he said, that he could do something that Yahweh couldn't do. And in my mind, I'm a, I was a teenage boy. I think I was like 17, 18, maybe at the oldest. I said, I don't know about that, Brother James. I thought in my mind that's silly, but then he explained to me that he could tell a lie. But Yahweh couldn't. Because in Hebrews 6 it says it's impossible for God to lie. I said, well, I laughed, I shook my head because Elder James Reddy was correct. But there are far more things that we cannot do or are limited in as humans. See, Yahweh being it being impossible for Yahweh to tell a lie... That's not something that limits him. That's something that makes him the unique Elohim. That's part of his nature. He can't speak falsehood. We are bound in both spirit and in flesh to our nature. In other words, both the inner man and the outer man. And unless Yahweh gives us the ability to do what we cannot do by ourselves, we will not be able to do it. That includes crying out to Him in repentance. You cannot cry out to Yahweh in repentance unless He first gives you a new heart and a new mind. The natural man does not do that. Yahweh is in control. So we have a will, but so does Yahweh. Our will is more limited than Yahweh. And any time our will bumps into the will of Yahweh, if this is Yahweh's will and this is our will, any time we bump in together, His will always wins. 
If Yahweh absolutely wills something to take place, it will take place. You cannot stop it. And I know, I think this will be okay here, but a lot of people don't like this next statement. A billion prayers cannot change Yahweh's mind if it's His will for something to happen. Now, it is okay to pray. We are commanded to pray. And we are commanded to have faith. But if your prayer is answered the way that you ask it, it is only because it was ultimately Yahweh's will to begin with. People say, well, if Yahweh's in control, why do we pray? And I always respond, if Yahweh's not in control, why do we pray? Why do we pray for somebody that's sick to get better if Yahweh can't make that happen? Why do we pray for somebody that's not born from above to be born from above? Why do we pray for a family member that's lost or on drugs or out on the streets doing all kinds of lawlessness? Why do we pray for them? Yahweh save them. Yahweh give them a new heart. Why do we pray if Yahweh can't do it? We pray because we know that Yahweh can do it. And we should never stop praying. You know why? Because Yahweh doesn't just ordain the end, but He ordains the the road or the means to that end. So you say, well, you know, I'm going to go home and I'm going to pray for, let's say, my sister or my loved one or my cousin or whatever to be saved. And then Yahweh saves them. Yahweh saved them by His total power and He used your prayer to accomplish His will. So that's kind of, that kind of shows us the mind of Yahweh a little bit. But this is the mighty one of Holy Scripture. He is not some wimpy God who is held captive by the whims and the wills of humans. He is the Almighty that causes all things to happen according to the counsel of His own will. He told Moses while Moses stood in front of Pharaoh for the last time, I'm going to send one more plague on Egypt. After this one, Pharaoh's going to let you go. Yahweh could say that with confidence because he was in control of the outcome. Yahweh is in control. Yahweh is sovereign. Now look at 11 verse 2. And remember, this is still in the parenthesis that Yahweh is speaking to Moses while he stands in front of Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 11 verse 2 says, Now announce to the people that both men and women should ask their neighbors for gold and silver jewelry. Verse 3, Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And the man Moses was feared in the land of Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. Now verse 3 is kind of a parenthesis within a parenthesis. <laughs> Verses 1 and 2 is what Yahweh downloaded into Moses' mind as he stood there in front of Pharaoh. And then verse 3 kind of tells us something that took place and explains verse 2. Verse 2 says that Yahweh instructed Moses to tell the Israelites to ask the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry. And verse 3 tells us that the Egyptians would give it to them because the Israelites had gained favor in their sight. How did they gain favor? Through the plagues, especially the final plague, death of the firstborn. All of the plagues they watched Yahweh perform through the man Moses. The Israelites gained favor in their sight. So this is what's known as spoiling the Egyptians or plundering the Egyptians. Some translations say borrow here. Borrow from your neighbor instead of ask and I don't know, borrow might have meant something different back in 1611 when the KJV was initially translated. It could have, but it's not the best English word to translate it as now because the Israelites weren't borrowing anything. They were asking for 
jewels of silver, jewels of gold, and, and articles of clothing. And the Egyptians were giving it to them because they had gained favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So they weren't borrowing anything. Now, I do not believe that this happened right then and there in chapter 11. I think that this took place after the final plague when the Israelites were thrust out of the land of Egypt. I think Yahweh is telling Moses, this is what you're going to do. But it took place after they were thrust out and they were astounded at the power of the Hebrews' mighty one. In Exodus 12 verse 33, it says, Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country. This is after the Passover, after midnight. For they said, we're all going to die. Verse 34, So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their clothes on their shoulders. Verse 35, The Israelites acted on Moses' word. I think that goes back to chapter 11, verses 2 through 3. That's Moses' word. And asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And Yahweh gave the people such favor in the Egyptian sight that they gave them what they requested. In this way they plundered or spoiled the Egyptians. Now this had already been appointed and planned by Yahweh as well. Let me go to this one on the screen. I want to go to Exodus chapter 3 beginning at verse 19. Exodus three nineteen, And this is Yahweh speaking to... Moses. Exodus 3 verse 19. He says, However, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go unless he is forced by a strong hand. There's that free will of Yahweh forcing something. (laughs) That's Exodus 3 verse 19. Some translations read a little bit differently like, No, not but by a strong hand or something like that or except by a strong hand. Mighty hand. Mighty hands, that's good too. Verse 20, he says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it. And after that, he will let you go. 21, and I will give this people such favor in the sight of the Egyptians that when you go, notice the favor, the favor that the Israelites get in the sight of the Egyptians is when they go. You will not go empty handed. Verse 22, Remember, this is back before the plagues ever took place. Each woman will ask her neighbor and any woman staying in her house. Now, I have read that verse. I'll stop right there for a second. I had read that verse scores of times. And that today was the first time that I noticed the difference between the woman asking her neighbor and any woman staying in her house. What I think this goes to, and I'll get to this more in the sermon series is that this shows that some of the Egyptians, even then, were friendly with the Hebrews and they wanted to serve Yahweh. Through the plagues that Yahweh put on the people of Egypt, some of the Egyptians started waking up and saying, hmm, this mighty one means business. Pharaoh's officials in Exodus 9 says they feared Yahweh. And then, of course, we know in Exodus 12.33 it says that a mixed multitude went out with the men of Israel and the women and the children of Israel. So what I think was happening is some of the hearts were being changed through the mighty wonders and acts of the mighty hand of Yahweh. And then it says, they asked the women, ask her neighbor and any women staying in their house for silver and gold jewelry and clothing, and you will put them upon your sons and your daughters. Uh, so I wrote here so much for the anti-jewelry message. <laughs> There are some denominations that teach against wearing jewelry. 
And they get that from two New Testament passages. If they had a foundation in the Old Testament, they would never arrive at that doctrine. Because this passage right here, Yahweh is directly commanding them to spoil the Egyptians with jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And he says, put them on, not just your daughters, but also your sons. So they go out, they plunder the Egyptians at the end there of verse 22. And they go out dressed in fine articles of clothing and also precious gold jewelry and silver jewelry. The main point here is that this plundering of the Egyptians was already foretold way back in Exodus chapter 3 before Moses even went back to Egypt. Then it was reiterated to Moses in chapter 11 verse 2 and it was carried out when the Israelites were thrust out of the land of Egypt, pressured out of the land of Egypt in chapter 12 after the Passover event. And then in Exodus 11 verse 3, it tells us that Moses was feared or some translations say very great, in the land of Egypt. So the people of Egypt did not only know the name Yahweh, they also knew that his prophet was Moses or Moshe. And they knew this by the miracles that Yahweh did through the prophet. They knew Moses was not a man to be trifled with. Now I believe, based upon my studies of the Scriptures, that Moses is one of the greatest and most righteous men to ever walk on the face of the earth. I have never never pinned it down to the top five, but he would probably be a great candidate for the top five. Definitely top ten. He was not a perfect man. We, can, we know there's one place in particular where he disobeyed Yahweh. He let his anger get the best of him. And he didn't obey Yahweh. And it was in something small. And that didn't keep Moses out of the kingdom, but it did keep him out of the, the Canaan land that was promised. Yahweh told him, you can look at it, you'll see it from afar, but you won't be able to enter into it. Moses was not perfect, but he was most certainly a righteous man, and he was Yahweh's man of that day. Yahweh would speak directly to Moses. Yahweh told one time, Aaron and Miriam, they were murmuring about Moses. You don't murmur about Moses. (laughs) They got in trouble. Yahweh struck Miriam with leprosy because she talked bad about something that Moses had done. There wasn't anything wrong with it. There's, there's debate about what happened, but that's for another message and another time. But Yahweh struck her with leprosy, and he told Miriam, he said, I speak to people, I speak to prophets in dreams and in visions. He said, but not, that's not the same thing as with Moses. He said, I talk with Moses directly. Some translations say face to face. Others say mouth to mouth. He's my special man. And it says there in that text in Numbers 12 that the form of Yahweh he will see. And we know in Exodus 33, you remember when Yahweh hit him in the cleft of the rock and he went by, he didn't see his face, but he saw his back parts. And then it made Moses' face glow. He had to put a veil over his face when he talked with the people. Moses was fa- the man that fasted for 40 days and then another 40 days, 80 days total, and communed with Yahweh directly and received the tablets of the covenant from Yahweh. So it's a very important man right here. Yahweh used him in a mighty way and gave him supernatural strength and ability. Remember back to Exodus 4. Where Yahweh says to Moses, when he does all these things in front of Pharaoh, Yahweh says, all the wonders I have put within your power. This is why Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. This is why he was feared in the land of Egypt. And this is part of the reason why the Egyptians that stayed behind and didn't leave were so eager to give away their possessions, their silver and their gold jewelry, their articles of clothing. Some critics of the Bible 
have said that this is contradictory to the command found elsewhere in the Bible, thou shalt not steal. That plundering the Egyptians is stealing from the Egyptians. Now, I can't say it any better than Matthew Henry. So I pulled up his commentary today on Exodus 11 verse 2 about this plundering. He says this. Matthew Henry is an old Puritan scholar from the 1600s. He says, The Israelites were favorites of heaven, for God Himself espoused their injured cause and takes care to see them paid for all their pains in serving the Egyptians. This was the last day of their servitude. They were about to go away. And their masters who had abused them in their work would not have defrauded them of their wages and have sent them away empty. While the poor Israelites were so fond of liberty that they would be satisfied with that without pay and would rejoice to get that upon any terms. But he that executeth righteousness and judgment for the oppressed provided that the laborers should not lose their hire and order them to demand it now at their departure, Exodus 11.2, in jewels of silver and jewels of gold to prepare for which God, by the plagues, had now made the Egyptians as willing to part with them upon any terms as before. The Egyptians, by their severities, had made them willing to go upon any terms. Though the patient Israelites were content to lose their wages, yet God would not let them go without them. Note, one way or the other, God will give redress to the injured, who in a humble silence commit their cause to Him. And he will see to it that none be losers at last by their patient suffering any more than by their services. The Israelites have been oppressed, beaten, and even murdered by the Egyptians. Remember the little baby boys thrown into the Nile? In spoiling or plundering the Egyptians, they were getting all of their back pay for all the work that they had done. As Matthew Henry eloquently explains there, it was not stealing. It was compensation that Yahweh was giving them for the many years of labor that they never got paid for. And here's a huge point, and I'll close with this. Something is stealing only when Yahweh says it is stealing. Yahweh commands, thou shalt not steal. And He gives the stipulations and the statutes for that command in His written law. If an action like this, spoiling the Egyptians, is not called stealing by Yahweh then it is not stealing. The same thing goes for things like lying or taking somebody else's life. If I tell a lie to save someone's life, it's not considered bearing false witness because I'm rescuing somebody from being killed or murdered. If I have to kill someone in self-defense or to save the life of my wife or my children it is not considered murder by Yahweh. Yahweh sets the parameters of how His commandments are broken in His law. And only Yahweh's law matters. Yahweh never calls the spoiling or plundering of Egypt stealing. Therefore, it's not stealing. Yahweh calls the shots. We don't. So I'm going to stop here. And I'll pick it up. In verse 4 next week. You see what I'm saying? If I went through all 10 verses there in chapter 11, we'd be here for another hour. (laughs) So I hope everybody gains some knowledge in that. And I look forward to continue to teach it. Yahweh bless you. Shalom.